everybody, welcome to Stock Bites for Tuesday, September 1st. We've got a solo pod for you today. I'm going to be talking about a few different topics. Uh, first, I'm going to be sharing my experience uh, around being laid off in the middle of a, of a pandemic with a stay-at-home wife and a five-month-old son, and just you know, talking about the importance of managing your money, uh, communication with your spouse, and adding to your repertoire, you know, finding other ways outside of your nine to five to earn income. The second half of the show, we're going to talk about what's going on with the U.S. dollar, what it means for U.S. companies, for inflation, and for the U.S. government. So follow us on Twitter at stock underscore bytes. Shoot me an email at stockbytespodcast at gmail.com. Let's get it. All right. First up, managing your money, diversifying your income potential. I'm going to open this up by saying that this is just my experience. Nothing I say can be followed verbatim, uh, but it can help you think about your current situation and it may give you a push to do better. Um, you know, I was laid off in July from one of the largest U.S. asset managers. I have a five-month-old son. I have a stay-at-home wife. And if you throw a global pandemic into that situation... <laughs> Um, you know, it has the potential to become very stressful very quickly. Fortunately, my wife and I were able to save a good chunk of money in an emergency fund before all this happened, which, you know, has allowed us to enjoy the, the time together as a family and, you know, not have to stress about money during all of this. So, uh, you know, if I'm honest, I, I would say that luck played a part, a role in this and getting us to where we are today. But the other side of the coin is that I put myself in this position to get lucky. So at the beginning of this year, we were over $20,000 in credit card debt, and I grinded over that hard. Uh, you know, it would keep me up. It would keep me up super late at night. When I did fall asleep, my wife would have to wake me up because I'd be grinding my stress, uh, grinding my teeth because of the stress. I absolutely hated being under someone else's finger like that. And, you know, every month you get slammed with these huge interest payments and you have little or, or no room for financial flexibility or to save money. It's a terrible situation. So, you know, the next part of, of this isn't luck, but I, I will grant you that the timing definitely worked out well. Uh, at the beginning of this year, we, my wife and I made a conscious decision to get out of credit card debt. Coming to that awareness wasn't easy. I'm the money guy in the house. I handle our investments, our retirement contributions, our credit card bills, all that stuff. But the stress of, of handling those by myself was overwhelming. So at the beginning of the year, I made my wife commit to having a money conversation at the beginning of every month. You know, the first of every month, we're going to sit down at the dinner table uh, take out a pen and paper and map how much cash we have, how much money we owe to the credit card companies, how much money we'd need to survive for the month, when and how much our bills are going to be. And I'll tell you, it sucked. <laughs> this conversation, it led to tears on both of our accounts on multiple occasions, especially in the beginning. It was almost like some weird form of torture, like... Let's sit down with the person that you love the most in the world and talk about how you're failing. But to be honest with you, it's one of the best things that we've ever done. And all of a sudden, we were on a team and, you know, we're on the same page. We both understand the hole that we're in financially, and that allowed us to attack the problem together. All of a sudden, we had fewer Amazon boxes showing up at our house. 
We're eating dinner at home more. We're not traveling. And we were okay with it. There wasn't any tension or pressure uh, about it. There was no fights about staying in on a Friday night. Because I brought my wife into the discussion, it strengthened our ability to attack the problem because we were a team. We worked together. And, you know, I've read a bunch of Dave Ramsey, Mr. Money Mustache, and other financial blogs. I'd encourage you to do the same, uh, but keep an open and and critical mind about what you read and and hear. Not everything that these people tell you is going to work for your situation. The same, you know, the same uh, uh, for me. Like, the things that I did won't work for you. You have to figure that out on your own. You know, Dave Ramsey talks about putting aside your monthly expenses, your entertainment, your food into like envelopes and cash. And once that cash out of the envelope is gone, you're done for the month. Well, we don't keep cash on hand. We don't go to, we don't go inside of banks and you know, we're, we're a plastic family. So we had to find another way to manage and track our expenses. I have a good buddy who's a financial advisor who turned me on to Mint and uh, another one of these expense tracking softwares and they're great websites. But it didn't work for us. It's just too time-consuming for us to make sure that all of our purchases were lumped into the the correct category. So to be honest with you, what worked for us was really changing our mindset and how we how we thought about money and our you know in our week and in our month and in our lives. Adopting the mentality of saving money and creating better spending habits, uh, and because we were doing that together, we were able to hold each other accountable. So read, expand your knowledge. If you have an emergency fund already, shop around uh, for online savings accounts that actually pay interest. Don't just let it sit in your bank account earning nothing. If you don't have an emergency fund, three to six months of expenses, try start trying to save every month. And look, there's a ton of online resources about all this stuff. Uh, Definitely Google it. But, you know, and they're going to tell you this as well. And this is, I think, the big thing. Before you, before you save, uh, you know, before you start shopping around for online bank accounts, before you uh, start investing in the stock market, you need to make sure that you're not under the thumb of one of these credit card companies and just getting eaten alive by interest. Visa, you know, it's $9.7 billion in 2019 revenue. All that money is coming out of our pockets in terms of fees and interest and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, Google this stuff, uh, figure out what works for you. But I would say my, my advice that I would say you should follow is make sure that you bring your spouse into the conversation or your significant other. It's a lot easier to move a big object if you have both people pushing in the same direction. So sit around a dinner table once a month, write out your budget for the coming month, track your debt, create a plan. I'm 100% positive that this step alone will do more for your mental health and financial picture than any other, uh, any of the other shit that I just talked about. And depending on your situation, the first couple of months may be difficult. There may be tears, but I promise you in a, in a few months, you'll sit down and you'll see the progress. It won't be as bleak and you'll start to gain momentum Every month. And once you get the ball rolling from one month to the next, it, it starts to snowball pretty quick. So uh, another piece of this is being able to find other avenues to earn income outside of your regular nine to five. Uh, 
you know, if you think about it in investing terms, having all of your money tied up in one company leaves you ultra susceptible to idiosyncratic risk, event risk, company risk, all that shit. You know, so it's wise to spread your money around to several different companies to eliminate or reduce those risks. And again, I'm going to preface this by saying that I'm not, I'm only talking about my experience. This, This may not apply to everybody, but there's never been more ways to generate income than there are right now. You know, thanks to technology, all it takes is a little bit of effort and, and maybe income is the wrong word, you know, income designations, uh, expanding, you know, you know, furthering your education that, that all ties into this. Um, you know, for me, I'm a licensed realtor. I'm a partner in a private placement townhome development. Uh, I'll be sitting for level three of the CFA exam this year. I'm Fenra licensed, I host a podcast, I invest in the market, I manage and advise other people on their portfolios, and I'm working to launch a subscription service around StockBytes that I hope to get into more detail in the next couple of weeks. And all, all, all these things have played important roles when you consider where I am today and, and that I was laid off with a stay-at-home wife and a newborn. You know, I've been out of work before, and I've used that time to add to my skill set. The last time I was unemployed was five months ago. I tried to la- excuse me, five years ago. I tried to launch my own business and failed. Learned a ton of lessons from that, and I also used that time to to get licensed as a realtor. You know, I've been working full time for the last five years, and I've still been able to find avenues to continue to develop because that's really all it is: developing yourself. And whether you're using your evenings to learn how to code or getting certified as a Salesforce developer or developing a following for your blog or crocheting or flipping real estate or whatever it is that you choose to do with your free time outside of your nine to five, you're developing a skill set. You're learning real world, real world lessons. You're becoming more valuable to your family and to your organization to, and to your nine to five as well, right? Like, if I, was a, if I was your boss, I would want a well-rounded individual who's ambitious, who has their hands in a lot of things, right? Because you're going to be able to use these lessons uh, that you're learning outside of work with me. So, you know, by doing these things, you're reducing the risk that one pandemic can come along and totally wipe out your career or that one robot can be invented and your whole career will be replaced. You never know what tomorrow is going to bring. And the things that you, choose to de- that you choose to do today in your free time will either help you face that uncertainty of tomorrow or not. So find ways to exercise your creative muscles. Because whatever tomorrow brings, it's better to face it with a bunch of arrows in your quiver rather than just relying on one shot. So if you guys want to discuss this more, I'm happy to do so. Shoot me an email at stockbytespodcast at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at stock underscore bytes and shoot me a DM. I'd love to hear about your experience with getting out of debt. How'd you do it? What were the first few months like compared to the last? How important was communication between you and your family members? And and let me know what you do in your free time. What other money-making avenues have you chosen to, to develop outside of your day job? All right. Enough of the, the motivational speak here. I also want to talk to you about what's going on in the, uh, with the U.S. dollar. Uh, the U.S. dollar index, and we're going to call that the Dixie, D-X-Y, closed today uh, at $92.32. That's the, that's the lowest close since January of 2018. The dollar's decline against other currencies is typically viewed as a good sign for the stock market. And if you think about it, When the dollar declines against the euro, for example, it costs Europeans less money 
in euro to purchase American goods and exports. It should follow that American companies can produce and sell more goods to Europeans because it costs Europeans less money to buy it. So that's going to generate higher American employment and higher inflation. Because if you think about the, the flip side of that coin, if it costs less for other countries to purchase our goods, it means that it costs more for Americans to purchase goods from other countries. That's CPI. Consumer price inflation. You know, in other words, it's, it's the cost in real terms of a basket of goods that's tracked from one year to the next. If the cost of the same basket of goods has risen from one year to the next, that means we have inflation. Now, I might be getting off track here a little bit, but on the whole, inflation is a net positive for the United States and for the U.S. government. I can't even tell you how many trillions of dollars our government is indebted to the rest of the world. And there's, there's two, maybe three ways to reduce that amount of debt that we have outstanding. You know, first, we can default, and, and that won't work for obvious reasons. That would send us into World War III and probably invoke some weird alien invasion after the entire world is on fire. You know, if you think about it, the, the, the U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency. That means banks and institutions all over the world have to hold dollars. That means oil and other commodities are bought and sold in U.S. dollars. And many other countries base their own currency exchange rates on the U.S. dollar. So we can't do that. The second way out of debt is what we talked about doing earlier in the show, where you reduce your spending, you pay down your debt. And obviously, we've been doing the opposite of that. Since March alone, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet has grown by over $3 trillion. And that's just, it's such a huge number that you just get numb to it. And they vowed to continue to expand the balance sheet as aggressively as they can, as they see fit, to prop up the markets and to try to manage unemployment during the pandemic. And if a Republican wins the White House in November, you can rest assured that taxes will not be going up. So the government's revenue collection won't increase. And if a Democrat takes the White House, taxes will probably go up. So the government's making more money every year, but entitlement programs will probably be expanded. So government spending increases at the same time. And if you think about it, nobody would vote for a politician that comes in and says, you know, I'm going to raise taxes and I'm going to decrease entitlement programs by cutting Social Security, food stamps, Medicaid, etc., that would piss off a lot of people. And uh, a lot of people would lose money if that happens. So th I don't think that'll work. The, the third option is inflation, which the Fed has been trying to stimulate for several years without a ton of success. Inflation impacts lenders negatively. And I'll give you an example. Let's say that I lend you a dollar today with the understanding that next year you're going to give me a dollar in return plus 50 cents in interest. Now, if there's no inflation, and the value of the dollar that I receive back from you next year is still the same, plus I make 50 cents in interest. So I get back a dollar and 50 cents. But if there is inflation, let's say 2%, that a dollar 50 that I was supposed to get from you in one year will only be worth a dollar and 47 cents. I, as the lender, lost three cents in purchasing power over the year due to inflation. The value of the loan that I made to you has declined. So if you think about that from the U.S. government's perspective, they've been financing this enormous deficit by issuing trillions and trillions of dollars of treasury bonds. They're you in this scenario. They're the borrower. Banks, other countries, pension funds, mutual funds, ETFs, other institutional investors, they're me. They're the lender. 
They're lending the U.S. government a dollar for whatever it is, two, five, 10, 30 years, whatever the maturity date is on the bonds that they buy. If inflation comes back in a significant enough manner that it creates a huge tailwind for you, the U.S. government, and your ability to repay the debt. The U.S. government is borrowing a dollar today with the understanding that the dollar that they have to repay in the future will be worth less money than it is today. They're getting a discount to help repay their debt in the future. So this all ties into the U.S. dollar's value versus other world currencies. And to be frank, a lot of this goes over my head. I haven't been tracking the value of the dollar for years like these experts do. But I do know China wants the, the yen to be the world's reserve currency and that China is the second largest holder of U.S. government bonds in the world after Japan. And that China openly manipulates its currency to keep it weak against the U.S. dollar. That leads to inflation and higher growth in China, something that's not great for us as Americans. It's cheaper for the American consumer to purchase Chinese products, right? When the, when the yen is devalued, my dollar buys more Chinese products, but the dollar is leaving our country and it's slowing our growth. And if we just use Nike as a hypothetical example, you know, in a perfect world, Nike would manufacture their product here in America. They'd support U.S. GDP and provide jobs to thousands of people. But in reality, it's been cheaper for Nike to make products in a place like China. Now, there's a variety of reasons, including slave and child labor and no to low minimum wage that make that happen. But regardless, one piece of that puzzle is China manipulates its currency lower so that every dollar Nike sends to China buys more Chinese product that they can then turn around and sell to the American public. So if you fast forward to today, the Federal Reserve has made it very clear they're going to do everything in their power to keep the markets afloat. We've added trillions of dollars to the deficit this year alone, and the dollar finally is declining against other currencies. I see this all as pretty bullish for the stock market. And I'm going to close with this. The dollar weakness is particularly good for American companies that have large percentages of revenue generated overseas. Coke, Coca-Cola, for example, in 2019 generated 70% of their revenue outside of the U.S. And if we use them as an example, you know, if it costs two euros to purchase a Coke in Europe, Coke has to bring that money home and convert it to U.S. dollars. If it's Two euros gets you two U.S. dollars, you know, it's a wash. But if two euros gets you two and a half U.S. dollars, all of a sudden Coke is now making more money in U.S. dollar terms for selling the same amount of product. Some other companies to think about, and these are all 2019 numbers, but Intel generated 80% of the revenue outside of the U.S. in 2019. They've sold off significantly over the last couple of months. ExxonMobil generated 65% of their 2019 revenue outside of the U.S. They've sold off significantly. GE generated 62% of their 2019 revenue outside of the U.S. And then, you know, the, the fifth of those companies, the, and I just basically Googled, uh, you know, top, the largest U.S. companies that make the most money outside of the U.S. And the fifth company is Apple. Four of those five companies... Intel, ExxonMobil, GE, Coke, they have not rebounded from this March, you know, the, the COVID-induced decline back in March. I think this is a really interesting way to, to play the dollar weakness right, right now without having to go out and short the Dixie or, uh, or, or whatever, you, you know, putting, or putting, something into, putting money into something like Apple, which is trading at 
all-time highs. Um, all right. I think I've touched on everything that I wanted to do today. Uh, we'll be touching base with David Nasser later this week to, to continue our options conversation. And I'm going to be tracking down Trey somewhere on the other side of the globe later this week uh, for another show filled with shenanigans. Thank you all for listening. Stay safe. I hope you learned something today. Have a great rest of the week.